Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and thank you so much for taking some time out to listen today. If you're new here, welcome. What I do is I take a look back at events that have shaped Delmarva. This includes events that are based in true crime, possibly natural or man-made disasters, and other tragedies that have helped shape us as communities, as individuals, and as we will hear in this most recent um, series of episodes, actually physically, geographically shape us. For this podcast, we cover the areas that range from Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, Virginia north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, and all of Delaware. Today's and the next episode, as this will be a two-part episode, will actually um, discuss some other locations such as South Carolina and North Carolina, um, other parts of Virginia, as well as Philadelphia, D.C., and um, some parts of New Jersey. This is because it's in relation to a storm that took place in 1878, and the storm, of course, affected more than just one location. However, while I will be mentioning those other areas, that will be either to introduce the trajectory of the storm, um, also some things that happened in Pennsylvania, um, you know, more closely related to Philadelphia, that would affect Delaware as we share some of the same waterways, the same thing in regards to um, New Jersey and even Baltimore in regards to railroads. So this will be a really interesting episode, I think. When I first started reviewing um, information um, for this storm, I really thought that I would just have three storms in one shorter episode because all three storms took place far before the days of the internet. Um, all of the information would have either been completely relayed by newspaper or telegraph offices, which when you know a storm has taken out most of the infrastructure, those telegraph communications are pretty much going to be nil. And so I came up with about 20 paragraphs of each storm that I could find and started to go to work on the first one chronologically from 1878. And what I found is that as humans, I know that we have a quest for knowledge that's one of the reasons I know that I like doing this type of content. But other people are always, you know, searching for and trying to gain knowledge as well. So I found that the Delaware Geological Society, or survey, I'm sorry, actually did a very, very complete research document um, on this storm. They did the, um, the report at around the year 2000, so this was 122 years after the storm took place, but it was still looking at some of the things that I attempted to find with my resources that I wasn't able to do so. 
um, whether it was because, you know, for one, I, I don't have pay sources that I use. It's really not something that um, is feasible for me at the moment. So I was looking for free resources, which for, you know, things going back to the 1800s are very limited. Normally you would have to go through pay sites that have archives but fortunately, the Geological Survey did have access to different books, different publications that they really did use to bring everything together. So their report was around 80-some pages, which, you know, like I said, really did a lot of the research. So I want to give credit where credit is due. Most of the information that I'm using will be coming from that report and within that report, there is an extensive bibliography as well. So, you know, I will leave a link then to that report. That way, if you do want to, you know, find out more about the books that were written that they used or are able to find some of those different articles, that will be available as well. Looking at the wide context in terms of damage that the storm did, I will wait till the end to cover the monetary damage, even though up front, to let you know how I'm figuring that is based on the night, I'm sorry, the 2000 report that the geological survey did. I am going to take the figures that they used and try to convert them to 2022 figures they did convert them to the year 1999 or 2000 figures, but a lot has changed since then. Then, so I want to go in and calculate those. However, the numbers that are used in the articles that the report um, sourced, they, those were really the numbers from ships that were lost, from businesses that lost a building or machinery or a lot of their goods or large farms that lost crops and cattle. What's missing really are the innumerable individuals and families that lost everything that they had. And while, you know, at, to give an example, at that time, $3,000 would have been a lot of money, depending on whether or not that businessman was insured, you know, they may or may not have been able to recover. Whereas the individuals and the families that were part of, you know, the, the really ingrained middle class and lower middle class, once they lost everything, they lost everything. And to put those figures into money, it's, it's really not able to be done, not only on a personal level and what that meant to them, but also because those figures were not really reported on. It was the large figures of the day. Now, even after I did go through and try to eliminate parts of um, the report that were redundant, um, things that were outside of the ranges geolo um, geographically that I wanted to cover, I still ended up with 30 pages of notes. So that would include not only um, that report, but also some of the other information I had found previously. So this is how I know it's definitely going to take um, multiple episodes 
because some of my other longer episodes in the past have only maybe been 17 or 18 pages in notes. So I will be quoting some um, extensively from the report just because the reports of the day depict what happened better than probably I ever could. But within each of those quotes, there will also be um, some areas, again, that I've taken out because um, of redundancy or, you know, something that was outside of the purview. I will make sure that I make it clear when I am quoting, um, whether it's scientifically quoting some information or if there are even diary entries that I found. Also, I am not a meteorologist by any stretch of the imagination. I think a lot of us just come to, to know some of the weather just by feel. Even my 11-year-old will look out some days and say, oh, it looks like it's going to rain today. Um, and just things that we pick up. Um, just being from the area, even without, you know, really studying this or knowing what it meant, I just know that when I hear low pressure, that's not good. Low pressure is, you know, for a hurricane, the lower the pressure, you know, the more chance of there being um, a hurricane. So in other words, if it's a really high pressure, you know, there might be other issues related to that. But in terms of a hurricane, it's usually low pressure that's being looked at. Also, hurricanes do tend, okay, they don't tend, they do get most of their power from being over water. So when the storms form, they're either um, coming westward from, say, waters near Africa, or they're coming up from the eastern seaboard and the Bahamas or Caribbean islands. There are storms that you know, gather strength through the Gulf of Mexico. So there are just a few um, pieces of terminology that I want to go over before I start reviewing um, the report. Even though some of these terms may not be used during these episodes, it may give some context if you've heard them used in reference to other storms. So first is, of course, hurricane, but we may also hear this referred to as a typhoon. And what this is, is it's a storm that usually has um, a sustained wind of about 74 miles per hour um, in the northern hemisphere, so above the equator and to the east of the international dateline. It's called a hurricane. So being from the eastern seaboard here, we, from where I'm from, will always call it a hurricane. Um, if it's still above the equator, but to the west of the international dateline, it's called a cyclone. So those form really in the Pacific, um, whereas hurricanes form near to the Atlantic. There are also hurricane seasons, which you know, have slightly different dates depending on whether they're forming in the Pacific the Atlantic, or more towards what's considered the central basin. Um, if we hear that there's a hurricane warning, um, what a warning means is that um, the winds, at least of the 74 miles per hour, are expected in a coastal area. 
um, within the upcoming 24 hours. As far as a hurricane watch, these are more specific. Um, you may you know, know for sure basically that a hurricane or the, um, the winds will be approaching. Before a storm becomes a hurricane though, we might hear different terms such as a tropical depression and that's where um, winds are sustained at about 38 miles per hour or less and a tropical storm which is around 39 miles per hour for the sustained wind. So with some of that information out of the way, let's get into the story of the gale of 1878. Um, and as always, my sources, which again are primarily be the geological survey report, um, will be linked in the description of the episode. I also do want to add the geological survey does have a lot of maps that show the trajectory of the storm to give you a better idea. And it will list other things such as the miles per hour at certain times um, of the storm. So again, just kind of a wealth of information. So really appreciative um, of all the work that those um, who are involved in the writing, the research put into that to better understand storms because we always want to learn and some information from then from that storm may help have a better understanding of how storms form and move today. Now, I know many people live in areas where weather can change in an instant. And I've seen so many memes that, to paraphrase, say, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. And just personally, I think that's especially so near areas of water, whether we're talking more of large bodies of water such as the Atlantic or Pacific, or even within areas that have large lakes or other um, you know, water systems. And you know, as I mentioned, I'm in no way a meteorologist. And the only times I really check weather per se by a forecast is, you know, if I'm looking to check on how to dress my children, you know, so I want to know whether it's going to be 32 degrees or 63 degrees outside. And around here between the months of March and May, you kind of never know what you can get. It might be 32 degrees when I'm getting them ready. And by the time I pick them up, it's in the 70s. So that's really how I get my weather. I ask Alexa the night before, I know how I'm going to dress them. Otherwise, I look at things by sight, I see clouds, I see fog, and that's that. My husband, on the other hand, will listen to the Weather Channel 24-7 if, if he had the opportunity. And when there is any type of storm system, whether it be a hurricane, um, a nor'easter, snowstorm, he is glued to that TV set, and every 10 minutes he's coming to me giving me updates. So I really don't need to to actually tune in most of the time. He keeps me very up to date. But overall, I'm, I'm pretty pleased to live on the Delmarva Peninsula as the temperatures don't get as low as they do in many, many other areas of the nation. Um, the extremes of weather 
don't happen that much as compared to other parts of the nation, um, whether it's hot or cold. That's not to say that we don't have really hot, humid summers, but comparatively to say, you know, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, I think relatively we have it pretty good. And today, though, we have so many resources at our disposal. Um, centuries, or even just decades ago, it was a, quite a bit tougher to forecast the weather. And I know a lot of us have at least at one point in our lives made a joke about how meteorologists can be right only 50% of the time yet still keep their jobs. I know we all think about it. But, you know, in some ways, meteorology is as much an art as it is a science. And by studying storms of the past, each generation of meteorologists has an advantage. They have that extra learning that's come from those before them. And as with many scientific professions, even looking at things such as medicine, yes, there's a science to it, but there's also sometimes a feeling or an understanding that some people have that's better than others. And again, also there's that extra learning that each generation has. There was some very interesting information that was put forth in the geological survey. And while my personal feelings and emotions say that the information is not correct, I know scientifically that it is. And that was that there has not been a hurricane to make landfall in the state of Delaware since 1900. Now, growing up, I've heard of storms such as Hazel. I've lived through Gloria, through Floyd, and it's still technically correct to say that there has been no hurricane that made landfall. And even in Maryland and Virginia, the numbers are still relatively low. Even though I've been in Virginia where, and if I've mentioned this story before, please don't judge me, um, that when I was in Virginia, I took a tour on a boat where I was just basically going through the James River and being young and naive and thinking that nothing was going to happen. I took this tour the day before a hurricane was supposed to hit the area. And even, you know, those that ran the tour didn't think anything was wrong with going out that day. But, yeah, the wind hit a day early, so we did come back. Um, but they had rebuilt the docks because all of the docks in the area had been destroyed by a hurricane a couple of seasons previously. And they built floating docks compared to a rigid fixed dock so that all of the docks wouldn't be destroyed again. Um, or at least minimize the destruction that they went through. So while, again, it seems like we could say hurricanes have made landfall, it's more or less the, the outer edges or the residuals of the storms that normally hit the Delmarva Peninsula, so to speak, um, which is scary then because if the, the storms had actually made landfall in some cases, I can't even imagine what the, the aftermath and destruction would have been.
Um, so I am going to read some information from the geographic, I'm sorry, I keep wanting to say the geographical survey, um, but it is the geological survey. If I do accidentally slip, please excuse me. Um, but I am going to read some information from the geological survey report. So as I mentioned, no hurricanes had made landfall in Delaware um, since 1900. There has been one category two to make landfall in Maryland, one category one made landfall in New Jersey, um, and in Virginia, there has been two category ones, one category two, and one category three. Not only are hurricanes that make landfall very rare, but coastal flooding that is a result of a hurricane are also very rare. There was um, a review of the records of Breakwater Harbor in Lewis, Delaware, and using that specific location as a point, um, the survey reported that only six of the top 30 high tides of record were generated by hurricanes. So there wasn't a lot of damage done by water with most of these hurricanes. What those of us who do live around the middle um, or the mid-Atlantic seaboard up to the North Atlantic, we're form more familiar with what are called nor'easters. And we see these a lot more um, than actual hurricanes. A nor'easter is something that when I hear that's coming, I just don't wanna leave the house. Um, these take place in time frames where it's usually colder. So whereas hurricane season, it tends to be um, more during times that are warmer, even though it might be approaching fall, really nor'easters are those that bring most destruction because it comes with the cold weather and that can include heavy rains, which really feel very frigid with it being colder outside. And sometimes also it can come with freezing rain. So personally, I just see nor'easters as more of a threat and so does the Delaware Geological Survey. Um, I'm using it more as from a personal standpoint and observations from you know, just looking outside and what I feel when I'm looking at a nor'easter, the geological survey is using it from data showing that the nor'easters are what cause more of the high tides. And as far as damage, I can just say from observation as well, it seems like nor'easters cause more damage than any hurricanes that I personally have lived through, which granted have not been very many. Now, as I said, the storm that we'll be documenting today um, occurred in 1878, and it started near the latter part of October. Areas that were affected ranged from Cuba all the way up to the northern parts of New York. Even with um, some of the origination of the storm um, starting in Canada, there was really a convergence of a number of different systems, both high and low pressure, that for lack of a better term, was a perfect storm in terms of when and where these different systems hit and the fact that they were near an open source of water, not inland, where it gained a lot of strength by being over and near the water. 
while I did paraphrase a lot of the last um, information that I was giving along with some personal observations, um, I am going to read this directly from the report in regards to how the storm um, formed. So the quote will begin here. High pressure centered in the southwest dominated the country west of the Mississippi River. A second high pressure system was present in the Canadian maritime provinces. High pressure extended from this region southward over the Atlantic to Bermuda, where it was 30.19 inches on October 22nd and falling. I'm interjecting here. Remember that with lower pressure, that's where we're going to see the hurricane. So the pressure was falling at this point. Um, to go back to the survey, between these two major high pressure systems was an extensive area of low pressure with two centers, one over central Canada extending southward to the Great Lakes and the other, the hurricane. So there was already a hurricane forming. Rain from the Canadian system extended southward as far as Illinois. 20 to 30 mile per hour winds and rain on the Great Lakes brought out cautionary signals for shipping. End quote. Now, I do want to mention a couple of things outside of um, the geological survey in terms of communication at this time. Um, with you know, the invention of the telegraph with there being more centralized government. There, there was the Army Signal Corps that had set up locations throughout the East Coast. And while not mentioned specifically in what, you know, I reviewed for this particular storm, I'm thinking there almost had to be, you know, other um, signal locations set up through different areas of the country so that was kind of a primitive or early way of communication and forecasting where, you know, the Army had their signalmen who would kind of, I guess, call ahead in, you know, using more current terms. Um, they would call ahead to let the other signalers know what was going on, and they would update things such as flags to the storm's approach. Um, I will actually talk about flags a little bit coming up, um, or actually I have in the past as well on some information regarding riptides on some previous episodes, but whereas currently a lot of beaches have different meaning for different flags, um, the Army Signal Corps really communicated to make sure people were updated in the best way that they could at that time, remembering that there was no radio, that, you know, we take for granted that there's internet and we can just go and check the forecast. Back then, it was all really by sight, by feel, knowing that if you looked out over the water and it looked really, really um, dark, you might be getting a storm. Otherwise, you had to look for these flags or signs from the Army Signal Corps. So it was a great improvement, but was it exact? No. And besides the Army Corps with their signalers, there has been another major change in when we look at storms nowadays. Back at this time, storms were not named. So I must say when doing some research, it became a little difficult looking for 11th storm of 1878, 
now we name them. It makes it much more efficient when researching. But technically, this was known as the 11th storm of 1878, whereas it really became known as the Great Gale or the Gale of 1878. There is a chronological timeline that was given through both um, some of the articles that I found as well as what was in the survey. And what was very interesting was one of the first things that was mentioned. Um, and it was before the storm even set in, but it maybe gave a feel of the day. Um, and again, no radio, no TV. So the first thing given chronologically really in the survey was about what was going on in northern Delaware at this time. And there was one of the greatest entertainers of the day gracing us with his appearance at the Delaware Opera House. Now, the name Delaware Opera House, you might think of large vaulted ceilings with an alto or soprano or bass belting out a solo without the assistance of a microphone using good old-fashioned acoustics. So we weren't speaking of the bass, William Candidas, or who was a woman known as the favorite American contralto named Jenny Twitchell Kempton. No, who was performing there at the Delaware Opera House was the unequivocal Buffalo Bill. Approximately 2,000 people had attended the performance and in what I can only think of as a 21st century observer um, you know, regarding the recounting of his performance is that this was all staged, no pun intended, but it was really staged to make him look like the best marksman that has ever lived and ever will live. But little did the residents of this little big town know that at the very same time that they were laughing at the stylings of a man who used other people's staged incompetence to make himself look all the better, that within a day a storm surge would approach that would change the lives or even take away the lives of so many people. Early on October 22nd, newspaper reports were coming out with the New York Times reporting at about 1 a.m. that in Washington, D.C., the storm, based on the article, must have taken many by surprise. Um, the description used in that um, little blurb, if you will, from the Times said that the storm had not been previously reported. To show the trajectory, here is how things were presenting themselves on October 22nd. Starting in North Carolina at around 11 p.m., the areas between Wilmington, North Carolina, so remember North Carolina, not Delaware, and Cape Lookout were starting to feel the effects. Um, the winds were around 36 miles per hour and going east. Um, by the time the storm hit Cape Lookout in force, there had been a major change. The barometric pressure had gone from 29.12 to 29.05, um, and the wind had increased to 68 miles per hour. So even just seeing a small change in the barometric pressure, there was a change in the winds. Um, there was one record 
um, recording at one point that the winds had reached 100 miles per hour and Cape Lookout had received about 4.06 inches of rain at that time. Now, very early on into the storm in that area, um, there had been a schooner named the Altoona that had been lost, um, and that ship was completely, had to be written off. And then there was another schooner that had wrecked named the Magnolia, moving towards Norfolk, which is really getting close to Delmarva as Norfolk is about on the other side of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, you know, just not that far when you go get over the Bay Bridge Tunnel, which, by the way, I have an episode that I'm working on on that. Um, but I have to love the wording that was used at this time in regards to descriptions. It said along the area of Norfolk that the conditions by 9 p.m. was, quote, knocking things about in a lively style. So now we're heading towards Lower Delaware, and I really have to admire how succinct my fellow Lower Delawareans were even at that time and how they would sum things up. In Dover, um, it was reported that, quote, the area was visited by a terrible storm of wind and rain that began around 9, about 9 p.m. So just very short, straight to the point. It was windy. It was rainy, it was really bad, and it started around 9 p.m. That's what we know at that point in Lower Delaware. Now, the forecast for October 23rd is as follows. Again, um, this is more of a paraphrase or summary of a forecast that I read about for October 23rd. This, again, is from the New York Times. So basically things were moving quickly, temperatures were riding, uh, rising in the mid-Atlantic states um, as well as New England. Um, there was high pressure systems that bookended the storm systems with the highest pressure being in Texas and Nova Scotia. Um, so the lower pressure systems were in between there. In the South Atlantic, things were actually a little colder with clouds, rain and wind and it still had that falling pressure. Um, it was predicted that for the mid-Atlantic, things would be pretty similar as the southern Atlantic, um, but it was going to be cloudy and rainy, going from warm to cold with falling pressure. Um, caution signals were being used as far south from Macon, Georgia, to Buffalo and Rochester. So these were you know, the signalers who were sending information um, across the country and in you know, cases where it was applicable, we're using flags to signal um, the upcoming weather. Now, how things really happened. And to put it in context, this forecast was put out by um, the New York Times at around 1 a.m. And frankly, I don't know how they put them out or if it was just a blurb in a telegraph. It's just many of the things that I see from the Times actually had a time of 1 a.m. So these could just be updates that they were sending out to other telegraph stations. But at 1 a.m., the little summation that I just gave is when that came out. At around 2 a.m. in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, the anemometer which I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but it was basically, basically something used to gauge wind, that blew away at 2 a.m. 
but not before it actually recorded speed wind speeds of 88 miles per hour. So again, the forecast was, you know, the South Atlantic would be colder with clouds, rain, and winds with falling pressure. Didn't really get that specific, but yeah, 2 a.m., the wind gauge blew away in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Now the winds shifted from the southeast to the southwest, and the winds ranged from 44 miles per hour to 84 miles per hour. At this time, the storm could be seen taking the first toll of life. There were 19 men from the A.S. Davis that died. The A.S. Davis ran ashore also around 2 a.m. Another boat named the Florence Witherby, then also boats named the General J.K. Barnes and the city of Houston, Houston joined the other ships as complete losses. Near the Chesapeake Bay of Virginia and Maryland, um, with a station at Annapolis at 7.30 a.m., the barometer had dropped to 28.82. So for reference, up until this point, any of the other pressures that had been read were above 29. So that all-important pressure is getting lower. A ship named the Express went down in the Chesapeake Bay. Now initially, and I want to reiterate initially, reports stated that only seven of the 31 people on board of that boat survived, so it was thought that 24 people were lost. Now, I'm going to, we to read um, an account of the storm and how it affected um, that particular boat named the Express. I am going to read verbatim um, for about three paragraphs um, of things that were of importance. Again, though, I did take out things that were rather redundant or didn't add um, to the story as if I, if I read every account verbatim without taking those parts out, we would be here for quite a while. So the account reads as follows, quote, The Express sailed from Baltimore on Tuesday afternoon with a large cargo of freight. As far as James Point, the weather was very rough and the steamboat was pitching badly, but no alarm was felt. After passing that point, the wind increased in velocity to a frightful extent and the boat in the trough of the sea. Captain Barker and, his, and the entire crew remained on deck. He directed the movements of the steamboat in the night. Early on Wednesday morning, the gale increased to a frightful extent and the steamboat was tossed helplessly about. About four o'clock, a fearful sea broke over her. The entire mass of water rushed through the saloon carrying away the furniture and lifeboats. Again and again, waves swept over her and the captain abandoned all hope. Procuring life preservers, he found two of the lady passengers, Mrs. Bacon and Mrs. Jones, and adjusted them. He then carried the two ladies on deck and placed them in the stern of the vessel and warned them that the boat was about to go to pieces. He promised to go to their assistance if possible. The captain then lashed his young son to the saloon and again turned his attention to his vessel. After clinging for eight hours to the wreck, they were rescued. They were nearly unconscious. The other part of the wreck drifted onto Barren Island, the men clinging to it being rescued by a boat from the steamboat Shirley 
of the York River Line, which was also ashore on the island. None of the passengers were rescued, and Captain Barker is convinced that the ladies perished. Captain Barker is at his home in Baltimore, scarcely able to move, and receiving the attentions of a physician. The house has been besieged all day by friends of the drowned passengers in this city, asking for the news of their fate. Captain Barker is prostrated mentally and physically. His only son is among those drowned, end quote. Reports at a later time did increase the number of survivors to 15, um, but it does not say whether or not of those increased numbers of survivors, if the two ladies that he assisted um, or his son were among those numbered. Just something I want to um, kind of go back to in this account is it mentioned that he actually tied or lashed his son to the boat. Um, a couple of, I'd say a months ago, I saw, I believe it was about the, um, the White Star Line ship, the Atlantic. Now there were a couple of boats named the Atlantic, and this was, um, in the latter part of the 1800s. And, you know, again, I'm kind of going by this by memory because I couldn't find the exact documentary again, but that people were actually lashed to the boat. Um, so again, don't quote me on the exact boat as I couldn't find the documentary, but it is not the first time I've heard of someone tying someone to a boat to try to at least keep them from being swept overboard, from being swept away from any boats. Um, but in this particular case, we see that the water itself just washed away the lifeboats. So there was really not a lot of hope at that point in time. For one thing, if a huge boat could not survive the gale and the wind and the water, how would you then expect a small lifeboat to you know, be able to survive that? There were also about four or five other larger ships as well as a large number of small ships that did go aground with the wind. Um, at that point, it was estimated that there were about four to six fatalities total um, in that specific area. Moving upward to the eastern shores of, I'm sorry, the eastern shore of Virginia and Maryland, um, looking at some losses on that day, um, there was a steamer named the Helen that reported that for 20 miles north of Cape Charles, um, pretty much everything had been swept away, that stock, houses, and grain were all gone. Um, Powell's Wharf um, had a lot of vessels that were gone. Now, Powell's Wharf was actually named after a gentleman who was living there at the time as well. Um, and just individually, he was estimated to have lost about three to $5,000 at that time, which again, as we get to the end, um, I will look at it in a more broad or general um, aspect on you know, how it affected just basically the Eastern seaboard in general. Um, two particular islands, um, Cobbs and Hogs Islands, most of the people who lived there, they were feared that they had all died. Basically, any of the boats 
um, that were in that area were either sunk or had been pushed ashore. And looking at the shores of those areas, you could see things that had washed ashore from other ships. So, you know, goods, um, parts of boats, mechanisms, all of that had been pushed ashore as well. Um, it was also of a large concern that many of the houses on Shinkatig were gone. Now, looking at today's geography, I can say that I can 100% see that many, if not all, of the houses of that time from Shinkatig could have very well been swept away. It's very low-laying um, when you actually enter um, Shinkatig, there are some bridges that you cross over and you're very, very close to the water. And at, you know, high tide, it's, if you're not from the area, it could be very disconcerting. And even living in the general area, I can find it disconcerting. Um, my brother and sister-in-law lived um, on one of the islands um, in the area. It was in Maryland, though. It was Elliot's Island and going out you know, to their house. Um, I, I only made it out there a couple of times as they're now back on this side of the shore. But, you know, the water could come very high. And if it was high tide and there was a storm, you could not get over the roads. And we'll discuss another island a little bit later on that I'm very familiar with and traveled there dozens of times that I can't imagine what it would be like being on that island. So with a description from what occurred at Shinkatig, um, there was actually someone from the Baltimore Sun who was in the area. He went um, by boat up and down through the tributaries, um, through the waterways to see what was going on so he could report back about um, the aftermath of the storm. So this is what he wrote, and this will be about maybe two paragraphs um, completely. So to begin the quote, and this was under the date, I'm sorry, this was the date of October 24th when he wrote this. So quote, the flood swept before it sheep and cattle and horses in all directions and ruining nearly all the crops which the poor islanders had worked hard all the summer to raise for winter supplies. Granaries and corn cribs were flooded and their contents swept off or ruined where they stood. The greater part of the crops had been scattered. Sweet potatoes and other potatoes are raised and a good many never will be dug out of the beds. Small boats and large schooners even were cast up into the cornfields and on the marshes and shoals. Some of these will prove total losses, but others may be saved but in many cases it will cost half their value to set them afloat again and put on the needed repairs. Very many of the poor islanders have lost everything, and some who were well-to-do before the cyclone are reduced to poverty. Your correspondent traveled by the little steamer Widgeon for over 40 miles among the countries, etc., of the eastern shore of Virginia and the shores of the rivers, etc., were strewn with the carcasses of horses cattle, and sheep. Many of the hardy Shinkatig ponies, which are accustomed to stand all kinds of hardships out in all weathers and seasons, were overwhelmed in the rising flood. 
everywhere the storm was disastrous in its effects, though, so far as could be learned, only one or two human lives were lost. The life-saving stations along the coast were under two or three feet of water. Captain James Tracy reports that the crew at his station worked all night to keep the windows from being bursted in by the force of the wind. Captain Tracy thinks that, but for those precautions, they would all have perished, for the water around them was in some places ten feet deep, and no boat could live in the heavy surf that beat the coast. No vessels, however, were driven on the beach. Now, and this is where um, this particular recounting ended. Now, I am very partial to the Chincoteague ponies. They do also venture onto acetate. You are probably just as likely, if not more likely at times, to see them along the beaches of Assateague, Maryland, and Virginia. But where this writer did say that they were accustomed to all kinds of hardships, though it's not 100% validated how the ponies um, made it to Chincoteague, it's pretty well accepted that um, a Spanish galleon was sunk probably in a storm and the ponies were able to swim ashore. Now, over time, the ponies began to adjust. Um, what they had to eat was not really conducive to a horse, um, but their bodies adjusted. They became more hardy. They have a more distended stomach compared to other horses. And Chincoteague Pony is actually its own breed after all of the changes that the generations made, you know, where their bodies adjusted in order to stand what was actually available for food and for drink in the area. So they are really a very hardy pony. But this was, you know, a storm that had such wide sweeping implications. And unfortunately, some of the ponies did not make it. Um, there were accounts, too, of people, men, women, and children, all taking the hides off the ponies. And while at some point we might look back at it and think, you know, how could they be doing that, you know, taking the hides off horses or ponies, and again, hard for me, too, because I, I really, really do love um, these ponies, but these are people who had lost everything, who when the winter came, which was not really that far away, this was the end of October, that they would need blankets, they would need things to keep warm, and they had to make do with what they had. And though I'm sure it did overwhelm some of the people to have to take those actions, they also had to survive. And in this case, they, they used any resources available, the ponies going through some other damage that was done in Easton. Um, a spire on the Methodist Episcopal Church had gone down at Deals Island, which was um, the other island that I mentioned. My husband probably doesn't want me to mention that because I, I would visit that island because the next boyfriend of mine lived there. So while we were dating, I would have dinner with his family at least once a week. So, um, yeah, at times with high tide, it was pretty treacherous. You didn't want to try to go out there if it was going to be um, like a high tide with a storm. At least I know I wouldn't 
Um, you know, they always say, at least driving now, that, you know, you don't know how deep the water is going to be, so don't try to drive over it. Definitely going out there, you, you would not want to drive over some of the lower levels um, of the road. There were marshes. You would just stay where you were um, rather than try to get off the island. There were a, what was described as several bodies um, that were recovered on the shores of Deal Island. Um, and one of the, looking at this location, um, I'll see if I can find a map to describe exactly how far it was, but that ship, the Express, the one where the captain actually tied his son to the boat, that was um, near Baltimore or the, um, or the Chesapeake Bay, down as far as Deal Island. I will leave a link to a map that shows the distance between the two. Unfortunately, I could not find a map that actually gave me the miles between um, James Point because James Point is actually kind of in the middle of the Chesapeake. So there's not really landing points. And all I could find was driving directions, which took it all around um, pretty much the whole peninsula. So I will leave that map on there. Um, also, just for reference, um, a lot of the articles of the time call it Deal's Island, but now it's known as Deal Island. So if I'm reading, you may hear me say Deal's, but if I'm just talking about it in general, I'll probably say Deal out of habit. On the same day as the writer in Chincoteague put out his report, there was also a report in Wilmington, from Wilmington, Delaware, in a publication called The Every Evening. Um, and what it stated was that at Lewis, um, the storm was, quote, the most terrible gale in 40 years. It further describes the tide breaking through Cape Hemlope. Cape Henlopen south of the lighthouse, and it actually came rushing in over the flats. So flats are kind of like areas in between the waterways that have some sand um, or dirt that have settled in the area, but the water levels in Lewis did come up to seven feet. Now, there was a strong juxtaposition, in my opinion, of damage that took place very, very close to each other, or I guess we could say lack of damage. Lewis and the city of Rehoboth are very, very close to each other. Now, I just recounted some of the damage that Lewis went through with water coming up up to seven feet deep. Um, now, Rehoboth Beach, however, some of the reports in that area were really very minimal damage. There was a hotel called the Douglas House, there was some erosion in front of that, but it didn't really damage it. It came to within um, about four feet of the Douglas House. As far as some of the other buildings in the area, it says some cottages were slightly damaged. There were bathhouses around on the beach. Those were broken up, but those aren't really very sturdy, um, you know, structures. And as far as the railroad, which we will talk more expansively about in different parts of the eastern shore um, a little bit later on. But in Rehoboth, the JMB Railroad didn't have hardly any damage at all. There was a little bit of track 
um, that was damaged or washed away, but that was just in a very small location. So compared to Lewis, where you know they're describing it as, quote, a thing not known before in half a century, very, very, um, a very, very short distance away, there was hardly any damage. But to show even more difference in how the damage was allocated along the eastern shore, other descriptions show that Rehoboth did have extremely high water and that ships ran aground. It really seems like location within, say, a matter of a quarter mile or less, you could go from having hardly any damage to having extreme damage. And I want to give one more um, story before I end this episode of the series about the Gale of 1878. I think that we've all seen over time that when there is destruction and tragedy, it can really bring out the best and the worst of people. I want to end this episode with the best of people. We were ending at the Rehoboth Lewis area and what happened was a, there was a sailor who his ship had wrecked in you know the storm. His name was Frederick Bradford and he had been on his way home to Boston. He was aboard a ship called the D.P. Phillips. There were a total of seven people on board. Five had drowned, and that was including the captain. There was another man who did survive. He ended up washing ashore, and his collarbone was broken, though. But going back to Mr. Bradford, um, he landed really along the area of you know, Lewis or Rehoboth. He really had nowhere to go. Most of the people that he knew in the area, they had passed away in the storm. The only other person that he knew was injured, and there was very little that he could do to try to get back home. He was told that if he applied for aid at the Custom House in Wilmington, and the Custom House was a government building that was located in Wilmington, that if he applied there, he would be able to get home at the government's expense. However, once he got up there, it was found that there was actually no government assistance for him to be able to get home. So you have this poor man who has survived this tragedy a, a far, far away from home. He's witnessed really the death and injury of his fellow sailors, and now he doesn't know how he's going to get home. And as I briefly mentioned previously, telegraph lines were affected, um, railroads were affected, which we'll get into a little bit more in the um, second episode. But when word got around that he was in this situation, he was very quickly helped out by other members of the community. 
There was um, a woman named Mrs. Pearson who um, allowed him to stay at her home. Another clothier of the time, a Mr. Nathan Lieberman, donated clothing to him. And just through individuals coming together, they were able to help him get back home. So in some areas and really a lot of areas of Wilmington, though they were damaged, many of the people still, I guess you would say, made out better than people in other parts of the state, um, just depending on exactly where they were located within the city of Wilmington. There are areas that are more along the waterfront, which I'm sure, um, and we will discuss too in the second half, that were, you know, more damaged than other areas. But people who were able to donate for this individual individual to get back home, that just shows how in the midst of tragedy, even if people have lost things, that a lot of people are able to still see past that and realize that there are others who may need even more assistance than they do and try to come together to help those who are in need. So as much as possible, I wanted to try to end this episode on a positive note. Um, The second half will really get into more damage um, that happened as well as the actual effects to the coastline and other parts of the shore. So like I said, as much as possible, I wanted to try to end on a positive note which is very hard to say considering just out of Mr. Bradford's group that five people did die and that one was, you know, a far way away from home with a broken collarbone. I really wish there was more information on him as well because, you know, as as much difficulty as Mr. Bradford had getting home, just imagine another person being you know, hundreds of miles away and having an injury and not knowing whether or not he'll have the means to get back home and if or when he does, exactly how long that will take. So I really wish there was a name for him that I could look up. But for Mr. Bradford, the people of the city of Wilmington did come together to get him back home. So thank you for sticking with me for the first hour of this episode. For the second episode, I will um, try to make it into one episode. There's still a lot of information to go through, um, but since we've covered a lot of background on this one, I'll try to start like almost directly back in to the events instead of having you know, a lot of the backstory. Now, if you've listened before, you're before I have said that when I do have the two episodes, I try to get the second episode out as quickly as possible um, because of the amount of information on um, this particular storm. I have gone through and edited and, you know, removed a lot of information, but there's still kind of a lot to go um, before I can really shorten the episode while not really losing the impact. So, I will try to get it out within seven days um, of the date that this is published. So that way you're not waiting a long time. But, you know, again, I don't want to lose any of the impact that the storm brought to the area. 
before I go, um, I just want to mention that my contact information, if you have any story ideas or thoughts, um, will be listed in this, um, the description of the episode. Also on the Facebook page, I did put kind of an informal poll to find out if um, most of the listeners would rather have one very long episode or if you like it broken up a little bit more so it's more manageable instead of having a two and a half hour episode at one time. I do also have another podcast. Um, it covers a lot of the same topics, but it's, you know, not geographically located um, on the Delmarva Peninsula. So, you know, so far I've really only covered other events within the United States. But I have many, many ideas on episodes for that um, podcast. It's called, and it's quite a long title, Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime, and Thought-Provoking Events, because it covers a lot of things. Um, you know, again, true crime, tragedies, and where I kind of expand in that podcast, I also look at events that may have been overshadowed by something else, such as Harriet Quimby, who was the first female in the United States to get her pilot's certificate, or as we would know it now, a pilot's license. She was also the first woman to fly across the English Channel. However, her name has been largely lost to history, and that momentous event of flying across the English Channel, being one of the first people overall to do so, and being the first woman, was overshadowed because the date that she made her flight was on April 16th, 1912. And if you are into a lot of history or you know, are familiar with shipwrecks, you may recognize that approximate date as being when the Titanic sunk. The Titanic sunk on April 15th of 1912. So while normally her flight would have probably been front page all across the world, it was forgotten about really because of the immense tragedy that took place by the sinking of the Titanic and the tremendous loss of life. After hearing about her, um, just briefly mentioned in just a quick article that I was reading, it was very short, um, I wanted to find out more about her and realized why many of us probably don't even know her name. It's because of a date, of a tragedy that you know, really, yes, in, you know, the just the extent that the tragedy of the Titanic was, yes, it should have taken precedence over um, a flight across the English Channel. But one can't help but think about what would have happened if she had been able to fly across the English Channel two weeks earlier or had planned her flight for, say, five or six weeks later. And knowing that at that time, there really wasn't a way to transport planes easily. Um, travel had to be 
you know, booked or planned for a lot of times in advance, especially if you were doing something like this. So it's not something that she would have been able just to stop quickly. And who knows, she may not have even really understood the extent of the loss of life on the Titanic because some of the first news reports said that no lives were lost. So I just found her story interesting, but that's one of the, um, one of the things, episodes that I have on my other podcast, if you're interested. Also, just um, if you do get a chance to watch um, its Oxygen Network TV show called Buried in the Backyard, um, the episode titled Family Affair in season four, I was interviewed on that episode. If you would like to take a look at that, um, I wasn't able to discuss it before it aired, but it did air um, not too long ago. So if you wanted to take a look at that, um, but I will again, leave all of this in the description of the podcast and I will talk to you again soon. I hope everyone has a great week. Bye.